is in the name of the Lord. Okay, welcome back to the Pittsburgh Oratory School of Christi. And, uh, over these last two and a half years, we've been reading from Romano Guardini's book called Meditations Before Mass as a way of helping us enter into uh, our experience of the Eucharist in a deeper way. Guardini, as I've mentioned in the past, wrote back in the 1940s. And even though he wrote a good uh, 20 or so years before the Second Vatican Council, uh, I think most of you would agree that how he writes almost seems as though he's writing for our generation, that he unpacks the liturgy for us in such a way uh, so it's to enable us to not only understand it, but to enter into it more and more fully. We've come down to the last two reflections, believe it or not. So we just have one after this meeting. And, but simply because they're the last two don't mean that they're the least important. In fact, just the opposite in some ways. Tonight's uh, discussion will be on the Mass and the New Covenant that is established through it. And then our final reflection will be on the Mass and the Second Coming of Christ, the Return of Christ, which will be an interesting uh, one for us to reflect upon. Uh, but one of Guardini's points here uh, at the very beginning of this reflection is that covenant is not something that we often think about in relationship to the Mass, or that we talk about. We use the word, and certainly it is even part of the Mass itself, part of the uh, consecration, uh, in particular the consecration over the, of the wine. Uh, but we don't typically, when we are thinking about the Eucharist, or perhaps talking about the Eucharist with each other, uh, too often speak about uh, it establishing a covenant uh, a kind of relational bond uh, between ourselves and God, uh, where both parties have specific responsibilities, that God promises to love us, uh, to care for us, to protect us, to strengthen us, uh, and we, on our part, promise to obey Him, uh, to be faithful to that covenant, and uh, and so in every way respond to his will in our lives. And as we go through Gardini's reflections, I think it'll be far more striking for us when we go back and look at some of the covenants established with, say, Abraham, for example. Uh, if you remember when God enters into a covenant with Abraham, animals are cut into two pieces, and then a flaming torch passes in between the cut pieces of the animals that have been slaughtered. And sacrifice, and it is as if God is saying, "If I am unfaithful to this covenant that I enter into with you, Abraham, let me be like these animals that have been cut pieces." So God is saying something extraordinary: If I cease to be faithful to my covenant, let me cease to be God, as it were. And Abraham, uh, in his response to this covenant, is to, to seek to obey the Lord and all that He directs him to do in his life. And uh, so even though it's a constant thing for us, we see it really all the way back to Adam and Eve, Abraham, we see it with Noah, and then Moses and the covenant on Sinai, even though it's such a constant part of salvation history, uh, it's not simply, it's not something that we typically talk about too much in our day and age. So I think it's a good thing for us to recapture for ourselves, because it is such a fundamental element in terms of our understanding of the Eucharist and what that means for us in terms of our relationship with God, how we act upon our freedom in entering into that relationship. What does it mean for us to receive the Holy Eucharist? What responsibilities do we take upon ourselves 
doing so. And in a day and age, I think when we receive so many things in a consumeristic fashion, I'm taking this in order that I might receive something that I feel that is necessary for me. We don't emphasize personal responsibility too much. What does it mean to say amen and to receive our Lord as our very food and drink? What responsibilities does that place on our shoulders? So, as always, the red italicized print is just uh, my little mini reflection before we go into Gordini's text. So just bear with me for a few moments. Guardini draws our attention to the way that Christ establishes his memorial, but is often given little notice and instruction on the Mass. Covenant. The consecration of the wine we hear, this is the blood of the new and eternal covenant. Yet what that exactly means may elude many Catholics. Guardini shows us how the Mass is connected to the Passover and the establishment of the law of Mount Sinai. He writes, the parallel is obvious. The mediator on Sinai says, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you. Jesus says that this is the chalice of my blood of the new and eternal testament which shall be shed for you. The parallels in scripture go even further back to the covenant established with both Abraham and Noah. And all these we find stress laid upon blood. However, not in the manner in which it is often described in tribal religions and their sacrifices. So there, there is something that is unique that we find in the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's not, as he says, something like the tribal religions, where sacrifice is very much a part of it, that through these sacrifices somehow one creates a special relationship with the divinity or gains special favors from offering sacrifices. Uh, to the divine being. There's something far more personal about covenant as we find it in the Old and New Testament. Blood, uh, which is associated with life, is constant through them all, but how we understand that it certainly is, is much different. Neither does God bind himself to one tribe or nation. He is the Lord of all, and Israel was to be a light to the nations. Again, Guardini states, Christ accepts the destiny prepared for him by the disobedient people of the first covenant and turns it into the sacrificial offering of the second, which binds the Father, Lord of the world, to his new people, now no longer a natural ethnic one, but a spiritual people comprised of all the races of the earth and united by faith. So, in some tribal religions, that this kind of sacrifice and covenant, if you will, established with, their, with the divinity, it was seen as tied only to them. But even with Israel, the covenant that God establishes with Israel as a people, it was in order that they might be a light to the nation. The law is given to them, not simply that they might live in this kind of blessed isolation in their relationship with God, but rather that they might bear witness to the, the nature of the goodness of their God, his love, the fact that God had revealed his mind to them by revealing to him his law, and the, the fact that God had protected them and cared with them with such intimacy, uh, that this was not, again, to be something that was simply a, a personal relationship between God and one ethnic group, even though I think that's often how we conceive of it. Israel stands apart only 
insofar as it can be a light to the other nations in order to attract them to the one true God, the God of all peoples. And we see this come to its fullness in Christ, where it's completely separated from ethnicity. And now anyone who in faith enters into a relationship with God enters into this covenant. Anyone who believes uh, becomes a part of this new and everlasting covenant that is established with Christ. So we see what was uh, takes place in the old covenant fulfilled in Christ and even taken a step further for us. Where did I leave off here? Pardon me? Wherever a, man. Okay. Wherever a man opens his heart to the tidings of Christ and believes in him, he becomes a member of that people. All things that came before merely point to this covenant of grace that comes to us from God and draws us from the natural into the divine. With this new covenant comes a new birth and a new creation. Christ's sacrificial death opens for us the new heaven and the new earth. That there exists between him and us a contract based not on nature or talent or religious capacity, but on grace and freedom. That it is binding from person to person, loyalty to loyalty. At every Mass, we should reaffirm that contract and consciously take our stand in it. And this is the point that I, I think that is really important for us uh, to think about, that there is uh, something here that is rooted not in our, our talents, our abilities, our strengths, but rather is rooted in grace, the grace that God gives to us in our freedom and taking hold of that grace fully and allowing it to bear fruit within our lives. But the last line of Guardini here, I think is particularly important. He says that each time we come to receive the Holy Eucharist, we should reaffirm this relationship with God, this contract that we enter into, him, into with him. So when we receive the body and blood of the Lord uh, as that which manifests this new covenant, then we are in our freedom saying yes to God I enter into this covenant, this relationship, and I embrace everything that it entails, all that Christ taught, uh, all that we are to become, all that we are to conform ourselves to. We are to put on the mind of Christ. We are to love as he loved, pouring ourselves out for others. We are to live the Beatitudes. So in every way, we are to make manifest this, this covenant and this relationship with God to the world. And so it's kind of an extraordinary responsibility that we take upon ourselves simply in saying the words, Amen, so be it. And I think this is what often escapes us. We'll often say, Amen, uh, perhaps understanding that we are receiving something important, and perhaps even life-giving, but not necessarily understanding that receiving that which is life-giving also lays upon us a particular responsibility that we are to fulfill within the world. Not only is a nation to be now a light for others, but we as individuals are to be a light for the world. We are to bear witness in our words, our deeds, everything to Christ and his love for his bride, the church. Okay? So this is the end of my just little preparatory remarks. Any questions so far? You see where Guardini is going to be leading us. So of all the things that we've looked at, this is going to be stressing the personal responsibility 
what it is to be a Catholic Christian and what it is for us to receive the Most Holy Eucharist. And you can see why perhaps moving away as Christians have from a sacramental worldview of understanding that God continues to give himself to us in this concrete, tangible way, especially in and through the Eucharist, has had an impact upon the Christian's impact upon the world. Because once you remove the sense of God being present to us in this radical way, giving himself to us in and through the Eucharist as our food and drink, nourishing us to everlasting life, and the responsibility that goes along with that, then I think the Christian witness begins to, to fade away. When you reduce it to simply being purely something symbolic, away from something real and true that we receive and become, we become sons and daughters of God, that we become Christ for one another. If we understand ourselves in this way, how we act in the world is going to be much different. The, way, the kinds of decisions that we make, the fidelity that we have not only to God, but to each other and to the commitments that we make, is all going to look distinctive in the eyes of the world. So every bond that we have as human beings, and one might say every everything we do, our daily work, our conversations should be reflective of Christ. And we've often talked about this before, that we have this tendency to want to blend in and thinking that somehow we've integrated ourselves into the world. And in this way, we are going to have a transformative effect. And what we've seen is just the opposite happens. We become assumed into the collective, if you will, we become like everyone else. Uh, when we lose that distinctive identity and that distinctive ethic that is ours as Christian men and women. But when it becomes heightened for us in the sense that we are entering into this binding covenant with God and we are saying yes to live in a particular way, then our life takes on a certain weight and significance as well as every single one of our, our actions and words. Okay. So let's step into Guardini. Among the words Jesus used to establish his memorial, there is one which, as a rule, receives little notice and instruction on the Mass. The word about the covenant. St. Matthew's Gospel reads, All of you drink of this, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is being shed for many unto the forgiveness of sins. St. Mark's, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is being shed for many. St. Luke's, this cup of the new covenant in my blood, which shall be shed for you. In St. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, we also find a reference to the covenant, resembling that in Luke. We see how important the idea of the covenant is to the church and the emphasis she places on it. The consecration of the wine and the canon of the mass, we have the words, For this is the chalice of my blood, of the new and eternal testament, the mystery of faith, which shall be shed for you and for many unto the remission of sins. What exactly does this mean? So Guardini picks up on something important here. That we can hear the same words over and over again at every single mass we attend, and yet really... Uh, be oblivious to its meaning for us in our day-to-day -day life. And I think this is true, certainly, of the word covenant. It's, it's not used very often in our common parlance. Uh, I can't tell you the last time I've heard somebody outside of Christianity or talking about Christianity use the word covenant. 
And so it's become more and more foreign to us, and even in terms of our understanding of the whole Eucharist. The Passover was the Feast of Commemoration. We've already discussed the event and commemorated when the rulers of Egypt remained unmoved by Moses' threats and God's lighter plagues, stubbornly refusing to let the Hebrews, Hebrew captives go, the Lord God sent them the terrible plague of the death of all their firstborn, human as well as animal. In order that it might be perfectly clear who was being punished, the members of each Jewish household were commanded to slaughter a lamb and dot the doorpost of the house with its blood. Thus the angel of death would pass them by, and their oppressors would be left in no doubt that they alone were meant. That evening, the lamb was to be consumed by the joyfully united members of the household, and the solemn feast was to be repeated annually in commemoration of the end of the Egyptian bondage. Jesus himself had celebrated the Passover each year with his disciples. But he had given the celebration a different turn by emphasizing not so much the liberation as the event following the sealing of the covenant of Sinai. So before going on to this little uh, quote from the book of Exodus, uh, it does help for us to go back to this original covenant established with, with the people of Israel. So the Passover is God's passing over the, the Israelites during that final plague. And what is communicated in this is that God preserves their life. He brings them out of their bondage, out of their slavery. And the meal itself becomes a sign of that covenant that they celebrate then from that point on with joy. But it is through this means, the shedding of this blood and the putting it across the uh, doorpost uh, becomes forever then the sign of God's liberating of his people. Some of the fathers of the church even speak of the Eucharist in this term, that when we receive the Holy Eucharist, it is as if the, the blood of the Passover is forever placed upon, on our lips. That this is how we should see it. We should make this conscious connection with God preserving his people in the Passover in Egypt, bringing them out of their slavery, to our Lord bring us out of our slavery to sin. And once again, the door, if you will, that enters into our very being, our house, our home, our hearts, is painted with the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, through which we are liberated from our sin. So every time we celebrate the Eucharist, these things should be at the forefront of our minds. And even sort of talking about it in this way, pulls us out of a kind of passive participation in the Eucharist. Because I don't know about, even as a priest, I mean, there, and who celebrates the Eucharist daily, there has to be a period of time where, where you are consciously preparing yourself to enter into the celebration of the Eucharist. Because for a priest as well, it can become functionary, uh, functional. And you're a functionary, that you're going out to uh, uh, to perform this particular task if you aren't conscious of what you're doing and what your role in that is. And, uh, and so it can be very much like going to one's job if one is not living a life of, of this deep relationship with God and one is not consciously thinking about these things as you're preparing to go out 
onto the altar and holding in mind and heart everything that we've looked at over these two and a half years. From the moment you cross that threshold into the church and begin to make that your way up the altar, up, up to the altar, our minds should be shifting. We're moving into a different kind of space here to enter into this relationship with God in a way that we don't in any other setting in our lives. And the more that we sort of banalize that, and uh, the more uh, that we remove from it some of the solemnity, I think we, we gradually lose the sense of what it is that we're doing. It can't be like we're going into a classroom to hear a talk, or going into see a movie, or to hear a lecture. And uh, I was always frustrated as a young priest. We used to say mass in auditoriums on campus to be closer to the students, as if walking a couple blocks to St. Paul's Cathedral or the oratory was difficult for them. So we'd have mass in the Graduate School of Public Health, uh, over at CMU, the Graduate School of Industrial Administration. And it was very difficult as a priest because more often than not, I spent the half hour before mass washing the chalkboards chalk off of the boards so it didn't look so ugly or setting up an altar a portable altar uh, in order to say mass under fluorescent lighting and so it was very hard to create a sense of reverence of mystery of sacrifice in a room where people had would put down those flip desks that would flip in front of them it was too much like they were going to class and so how, how were we even to expect the students to enter into that? And so it became sort of a, uh, a disheartening experience. So I have to admit, it was not a sad day for me when we had our last mass, last auditorium mass. And uh, when that phase ended, finally, because that's what it was. I mean, it was this kind of experimentation that took place within the life of the church. Uh, with the liturgy. And there was a time when those masses were packed to the rafters, and there was one reason for it, because it was unique. It was something new. I mean, people would be sitting on the floor in the aisles of this auditorium to, to go to mass, as opposed to going to a traditional church. And I think we, we judge it by its fruits. It's not something that endures. How could it? You know, how does it captivate the imagination, the attention, the hearts of, of people when you have to struggle so hard to enter into the, the liturgy and to turn it into something other than a lecture? It's funny, it felt sort of, you know, growing up in a Protestant tradition, uh, there was no Eucharist. And so typically the worship ended with the the homily or the sermon and if very much even though i went on to celebrate the whole eucharist uh as, as part of the mass that um, it felt very much as though it ended after the homily and or that much more weight depended upon the homily in, in the sense of engaging those in the congregation that you almost had to wake them up out of the stupor of the fluorescent lights and then uh you know, by the time the Holy Eucharist came, there was no kneeling, nothing that really would help foster that sense of reverence. So uh, even though I knew I was celebrating Mass, it did not have a very Catholic feel, let's put it that way. So 
He goes on to quote the book of Exodus. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice, we will do all the words of the Lord, which he hath spoken. Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rising in the morning, he built an altar at the foot of the mount, and twelve titles according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, and they offered holocaust and sacrificed pacific victims of calves to the Lord. Then Moses took half of the blood and put it into the bowls, and the rest he poured upon the altar. And taking the book of the covenant, he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All things that the Lord hath spoken, we shall do. We will be obedient. And he took the blood and sprinkled it upon the people, and he said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. So the people, after hearing the, the words of God, all that he's spoken, that all, all is good, and we, we vow to be obedient to all that our God commands. And to seal this covenant, Moses, as it were, blesses, consecrates them with the blood of the sacrificed lambs. Talking about making something visceral and concrete. It certainly would wake up people if we uh, did something like that today, you know, because there was something there that was undeniable, you know, in terms of drawing them into this sense of commitment. And again, drawing them back to this idea of covenant, because what, again, that the sacrifice of the animal is saying is that if I break this covenant, let me be like that, like that animal that has been cut in two and whose blood has been poured out. And uh, so when we have sort of sanitized things and where we lose the meaning of the word uh, and when we sort of uh, minimalize the liturgy too, because uh, the penitential rite often, uh, we, at Hans Chapel we do this a lot, the asparagus, which would be the sprinkling with the holy water. And even that gave a much more visceral sense of uh, one's repentance for one's sin and then being blessed with holy water and, and experiencing the holy holy water splash across you. But the Eastern Rites do this very, very well. I don't know if you've ever seen it. They use something that looks like it's made out of horsetail and there's this big wave of water that goes over the people. And uh, I try to do that as much as I can with this asparagus, but it's... Uh, it's never as impactful as we see there. But I think these are some of the things that we have lost, or even, uh, say, the use of incense, you know, of going around the, the altar, preparing the altar for the sacrifice that we are about to participate in. So you begin to remove all those things that consciously in our mind would, would connect us to what is taking place at that altar. And so long as we turn it simply into a kind of communal meal that we are celebrating together, that is sort of binding us together, we're, we've, we're losing sight of this deeper meaning that goes all the way back to the beginning of God's entering into his relationship with his people. Anything so far? So it's striking. You just get into this even a little bit, and you begin to see, oh my gosh, my participation in the Eucharist has been 
really cut short uh, in, in the sense that I, I, I don't really have a grasp on this idea of covenant, or I just don't think about it, and I'm not thinking about it. I'm losing sight of something pretty significant, and that is, what is my responsibility? What am I saying in freedom when I enter into this covenant with God and receive the Holy Eucharist? Yes. That I mean that really resonates with me because I grew up in Southern California, you know, a little bit over a decade ago. I'm 26 now, and at, now you know it's starting. There's a little bit of a shift now, and the traditional mass is more popular. And I think the new mass is being celebrated with more reverence there now. But when I was growing up, it, my experience of the mass was I loved going to mass, and I, I believed in true presence, but I couldn't help but feel that it was pretty boring. That it didn't quite. There was something. It didn't. Something seemed to be missing. Um, and then when I um, discovered the traditional mass, and I discovered, um, I started watching some masses on EWTN. I thought this feels. It feels so different. It feels like two completely different things. And that kind of was a shock for me. Yeah, I think there was something that took place there at the time of the council and afterwards that really wasn't meant to take place in the way that it did. And it was this experimentation. And uh, mea culpa, not mea culpa, but on behalf of the oratory, we were founded back in the 60s. And so the oratory was sort of at the forefront of that experimentation. Uh, but I, I agree with you. I came into the church and, I came, and my first experience was know, at the old oratory, and we had mass on this coffee table, basically, in the, in the living room with the students on Wednesday night, and it was a guitar mass. But that's, you know, where I first began to understand the sacramental life and the nature of the Eucharist. And so I was brought into the church in and through that simply by gaining awareness of the church's sacramental worldview that I had never experienced before or understood. And that was my experience for a good amount of time until, like yourself, I was exposed to something else. And that was the Mass at that, uh, that time at Heinz Memorial Chapel that the Oratory had. And it was much different from those other Masses. Uh, it was the Novus Ordo, but it was celebrated with the ordinary parts of the Mass in Latin. Incense was used, bells, servers, you know, in cassock and surplus. And so there was this kind of, of reverence and solemnity that made it tangibly a different experience. It felt like you were entering into a, a, a different world and that something unique was, was taking place there. And the focus shifted more and more off of the self on to what was going there. And I think even some of the attraction for so many people to the extraordinary form of the Mass is exactly that. That there is something, even if it's all in Latin and they understand no Latin whatsoever, there is this sense of extraordinary reverence and solemnity that is taking place there. They are being drawn into something that is distinctive from everyday life. That was my experience. The, the first time I ever went to any sort of beautiful liturgy, it was a Latin mass. And I was I was so lost, I was so confused. Mm -hmm. I thought there's something really beautiful mm -hmm. here. There's a sense of sacred, something special right. and different is going on. Right. And I experienced that in the Eastern rites too. Even though they have been doing their liturgies in the vernacular since I think it's 1886. Uh, 
and here in the states and uh, but there is the same kind of, of reverence that takes place and beauty of the chanting the vestments that they wear everything again to emphasize what's taking place at, at the altar and I, I think when we, where we see the breakdown that it takes place it's it's not so much in the vernacular or of the turning of the priest to face the people i don't think simply going back to the extraordinary form is the answer because we could still be ignorant of everything that we talked about these last two and a half years i think what is really how our minds and our hearts are formed that we might enter into this in such a way that we are transformed by it, that we become a new people and that we become united to christ and that we enter into this covenant in the way that is put before us here this evening. And I think, you know, it's where we've lost this explicit expression of it is where things are problematic. Like if the Novus Order was celebrated with reverence, just in, in, in English, if it was celebrated with reverence, you, you would gain a lot back that had been lost. I think this is where people become frustrated uh, because we've gone so far afield. It's not so much with the, the, the Novus Ordo as it is with the loss of reverence and a loss of the beauty of the liturgy. Um, yes, I, <laughs> I was just uh, thinking, you know, with me, Andrew and I have been attending Byzantine uh, liturgy mass for the past few weeks, and you know, the Thing that strikes us about it is that's how you know like how beautiful it is you know you come in you chant everything and you know you just seem to have a much wider sense of participation and you know there's just something that speaks to the soul to the heart you know when there's this beauty going on because that's one of the ways that we connect to god because god is beautiful that's right and this sense of beauty brings us closer to god and uh, yes another completely side side comment, you know, I was thinking about what you were saying about the lambs that were splitting half and you know that how that's you know what people should connect what will happen to us if they but you know I was thinking that there's been a sense of loss that you know we're not just bodily beings, we're spiritual, we have souls and in a sense when we're in mortal sin that's kind of what happens to our souls. We're kind of ripped apart and you know only God in the confession can put us back together. That's the reality now that the covenant we can break that covenant, and the only way that we uh, can re-enter into it is to acknowledge the poverty of that sin. But you're absolutely right. In that sense, sin is its own punishment. It pulls us apart from that which is the truest sense of our identity and the source of our life. And uh, but it's also God saying that, you know, and, and so it should give us great comfort that God saying, if I break this you know, which I never will, then let me be like that. So in some sense, it should give us comfort, even in the face of our own poverty, and knowing that perhaps we have broken that the covenant and been unfaithful to it in many different ways, that God is, is ever faithful. Okay. The parallel is obvious. The mediator on Sinai says, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you. Jesus says, this is the chalice of my blood, of the new and eternal testament, which shall be shed for you. Behind the covenant of Sinai stands an earlier covenant, the one that existed between God and Abraham, 
It too had been sealed in blood. After the sun had set, the dark mist had risen. A lamp-like fire passed between the divisions of the slaughtered sacrificial animals. That day God made a covenant with Abram, saying, To thy seed I will give this land, from the river of Egypt even to the great river Euphrates. Still further back, in the great beginnings of time, looms the original covenant between God and Noah, sealed after the flood when Noah offered sacrifice to the Lord. Noah built an altar unto the Lord, and taking of all cattle and fowls that were clean, offered holocaust upon the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor and said, I will no more curse the earth for the sake of man, for the imagination and thought of man's heart are prone to evil from his youth. Therefore, I will no more destroy every living soul as I've done. All the days of the earth, I'm sorry, all the days of the earth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, night and day shall not cease. Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I give between me and you and to every living soul that is with you for perpetual generations. I will set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be the sign of a covenant between me and between the earth. So, going all the way back to Abraham and to Noah, we see the the pattern of this uh, emerge, of God entering into this covenant and promising a kind of fidelity to his people. And uh, one, uh, a covenant that he shall not break, and gives particular signs for it. In all these texts, we find the reference to blood, often stressed again and again. This may impress us as strange and human, but we do well to refrain from judging hastily by our 20, I should say, 21st century reactions. Deep in the consciousness of all races lies a knowledge of the power of blood. Blood is life in its primary and most elementary form. Its flow eases tension, appeases anger, averts the lowering fate, enables life to resume its course. How it is possible to say, we can only sense the truth of this. Somehow, through the flowing of blood, a new beginning is made, mysteriously fortified by the sanguinary life power. Obviously, the primitive significance of blood cannot simply be applied as it stands to revelation. For if ever ever anything needed redemption, it is the dark primeval powers of blood. However, once existence has been transfigured, all things are revealed anew with them the power of blood. It is significant in the covenant, not because it is symbolic of of the glory and terror of life, but because in a special way it belongs to God, the Lord of all life. The flowing of the sacrificial blood in the Old Testament is an acknowledgement of his sovereignty, signifying the opposite of what it signifies in other religious sacrifices. It is not a kind of blood mysticism, not a release of the divinity in nature, not a summoning of the powers of the deep. It has nothing to do with any of these. It is simply the recognition and prayerful acknowledgement that God
God alone is Lord. So the connection is with life itself. What God himself has given us in our creation, that blood is life for us. And whenever it's lost, we, we are we resume our health when it is restored to us. And so we know this in so many different ways, in so many different experiences. But Gordini works pretty hard to distinguish this from other kinds of mysticism or world religions. Uh, as he says here, it's not a release of the divinity into nature, not a summoning of the powers of the deep. So it's not like Dracula. You know, it's, our horror movies have sort of picked this up in the most grotesque fashion. You know, there's this connection with blood being life, but it is really the, the vampire who's sucking the life out of human beings rather than the giver of life, who, who is our God. And in some ways, we need to separate ourselves from this kind of distortion. We find in our culture people entering into it more and more, and I think losing this sense that God in his sovereignty has created us this way in order that in and, even in and through these sacrifices, we might understand he is the Lord of life and that blood is life. And all of this is a preparation for the covenant that is going to be established with us in Christ, that we receive his body and blood. And in receiving this, we not only receive life within this world, but we are nourished unto eternal life. And so we have to struggle to overcome sort of a morbid, either a morbid fascination with it or just a morbid view of it uh, in, uh, at its roots, you know, where it's something fearful to us and we need to reconnect ourselves with the, the idea that it is the source of life for us. Andrea, I saw your hand. Yeah, this might be, um, I'm not sure this question can be answered, but when I was hearing all this uh, talk about blood and um, about the sacrifices, the blood sacrifices that came before Christ, mm -hmm. which were of animals. So the question that is in my mind, and maybe I'll ask the Lord when I see him in heaven, but um, how come it could be that, you know, we were, uh, an innocent animal would be sacrificed? So. Let's say that, you know, uh, before all those died on the cross, that, you know, I committed a sin. And that would be repaid by me going to slaughter an innocent animal. Rather than, you know, why doesn't the Lord just say, Andrew, you know, you're really going to have to do better. You know, you're going to have to change your own heart, maybe give yourself a little, you know. Um, so I understand that, you know, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you know, he's God himself who chose, you know, by his own will to take on our sins and he himself paid the price for us. But how can an innocent animal, and I, I don't just mean this in kind of like, gosh, you know, that, that is just cruel, but an innocent animal in mind and will, the, the shedding of, uh, of the blood of this uh, innocent animal in mind and but how could that pay for my sin? I'm not sure. Jeez, I think how you, you sort of answered your own question in the very articulation of it. Because the answer is that it can. It, it's a figure. It's a type that points to the, the blood that is shed that can redeem us. You know, but up until that point, it becomes this reflection of 
what would eventually take place in Christ, but also a callback to that fidelity to the covenant with God. You know, it's God understands that we as human beings are weak and that we, because of our sin, fall away from that covenant. He enters into a covenant where he binds himself irrevocably and perpetually to us. The sacrifice becomes a sign of the reestablishment of that life and relationship with him, symbolic of this kind of repentance of turning back to God. But in and of itself, it has no power. And I think this is what even you know becomes infuriating when it's pointed out, you know, by Paul or by the Lord Himself, you know, the inadequacy of that, and the thought that one could free oneself from one's own sin through such practices, and you know, it becomes a symbol of that repentance, perhaps, but it's not incapable of. Uh, of redeeming. And so, as you said, it's only when God Himself takes upon our flesh and blood and lives that covenant perfectly, then He becomes the covenant for us with God, the new covenant. So He lives it perfectly. He lives that covenant with, with the Heavenly Father perfectly. And it's in offering Himself and that he establishes and opens up a path for us through his blood that is redemptive, that not only frees us from our sin, but draws us into the very life of God himself. So your question was, in a sense, perfectly articulated, because I think it captured something of what is problematic there, or not problematic, but saying that you know all of these uh, sacrifices established in the covenant are not going to be fruitful in the same way that the sacrifice of Christ is fruitful. Yes? I've wondered, um, for example, in the new covenant, right, there's, some, there's an ontological change in us. For example, when we go to confession, Christ's blood is applied to us and we're freed from guilt, the penalty of our sin. So what happened? Was there any sort of transaction, kind of spiritual transaction that happened when the rites of the Old Covenant were performed, or were they merely just uh, external teaching tool? Well, I think they become a reflection of the internal desire to turn back to God and to return to that covenantal relationship with Him and an acknowledgement of their disobedience. But in and of themselves, they can do what you just described there. They cannot bring about this ontological change, you know, where we are freed from sin, but enabled to enter into this extraordinary relationship where we are transformed. And I think there, too, we need to pick up on the covenantal aspect of it, because when we receive that grace of the sacrament of confession, we are making a commitment not to enter into that sin again. That we trust in the grace, the life, the love that is given to us. That everything that we receive and is given to us gives us that capacity to be faithful to God and not commit that sin again. And we are saying that it is our intention not to, to ever commit that sin again. Uh, again, that 
our free embrace of that grace should be very much conscious in our mind that part of this sacrament is our stating of our intention not to commit that sin again. And I think there's a breakdown there too in our understanding uh, that it has to be more than a psychological release for us of this tie to the shame of committing a particular sin, where it's tied to a breakdown of our sense of our identity as human beings, that we want to hide from ourselves and we receive some sort of cathartic release by articulating it. One could do the same thing by going to a therapist and telling, you know, opening your heart to this person to receive that kind of cathartic release. But it's not the same thing as in freedom embracing that grace and in such a way that it can bear the fruit of this real transformation and conforming of ourselves to Christ. So then you'd say the, the sacrifices and the rituals of the old law, could we say they were merely sacramentals? Uh, I think that's not that that would have been a term that would be yeah, used. I mean, that's yeah. sort of. Uh, tied to our understanding, you know, of the incarnation. But I, I think it's fair that it, it points to this particular reality and desire on on the part of the uh, on the part of the people. But you know, there's one spiritual writer that I like to quote, Lorenzo Scopoli, in addressing confession in particular, he says, when we exit the confessional, it should be as if that sin never took place that our, our sense of the transformation that has taken place by the grace that we have received should be so great that the breakdown of that covenant is completely stripped from us. And now we enter, as it were, back into the fray and so deeply back into that identity in Christ that our focus upon the breakdown, the infidelity, disappears from mind. Because all that that can do is draw us back into the sin, you know, so long as we hold on to it in our mind and the shame of it, without the sense that we've been redeemed and that by the blood of Christ, we've been drawn back into the fullness of that life. That's what should be operative in our minds and our hearts. And the, and the fact that there isn't this transformation is probably more indicative that it's not clear in our minds. That for so many of us, I think when we walk out of the confessional, there is the anticipation that we're going to do exactly the same thing over again. That we place more faith, as it were, in our own weakness that is telling us, you're going to do that same thing again, than we are placing our faith in the grace that God gives us through the sacrament to lift us out of that sin. And then in the Eucharist that we receive after that, that this grace that we receive is given to us in such a way that God gives us everything we need not to commit to that sin again. And so Lorenzo Scopoli is saying that each and every sin uh, originates in a breakdown in our faith. It's rooted in our lack of faith in God and his grace. That on some level, when faced with temptation, we told ourselves that the grace of God is not enough to help me persevere through that. And so we allow ourselves to be dragged along by that temptation rather than placing our faith in the fact that God has given us the very life 
and strength and virtue of Christ himself. Think about what our, our lives would be, look like if we had that and etched in our, in our minds and our hearts, if we truly had faith in that. These are the kinds of things I think that we need to communicate because it also expresses our dignity as Christian men and women and the distinctiveness of the Christian life. That, you know, what we are seeking is not natural virtue. We're not seeking to be restored to natural human virtue where we failed and messed up and made a mistake. What we are seeking to be restored to is divine life, a participation in the very life of God. This is what we receive when we receive grace within the sacrament of confession and the Holy Eucharist. That is what is being restored to us. That is the life that should be coursing through our veins. And if we have had a sense of that, again, every our view of everything, our, it would be like we would be looking through these, you know, holy holiness glasses <laughs> that you know show us the path that we are are to walk and what that looks like. Go here. It should be saying to us, and that would be the voice of our conscience, you know, so purified by this grace that says, no, don't go there. You know, you're straying from from the right path. So, you know, I think it, so often in trying to be more compassionate, we, we think that means lowering sort of this estimation of what it is to be a human being and one who's redeemed by Christ. You know, our compassion should be for the fact that sin is this blow to human dignity and identity and should want, make us want to lead people to the divine physician in order that they might be healed and lifted up. But the, the way that we talk about what it is to be a human being and what the reception of that grace uh, means for us should, should be something that is being communicated, that we're not just super virtuous human beings, you know, that somehow in the Eucharist we're, we're given an extra added strength, the strength of 10 men and, and his virtue. That's not it. We become one with Christ. So his virtue becomes our virtue. His strength becomes our strength. It's divine life that we are entering into. Yes. Uh, this makes me think of certain kind of approaches or from, shall we say, the more liberal sort of church who wants to kind of loosen what they see as restrictions on discipline and especially access to Holy Communion, mission to Holy Communion. Saying, well, you know, people, people are weak, people are sinful, so why don't we just, you know, kind of welcome everybody to Holy Communion. But it makes me think of um, a comment a friend of mine made um, a few years ago. I think it might have been during the debate uh, over communion for the divorce but he said, you know, the distinctiveness of the new covenant is that we have the power of the Holy Spirit to live out these difficult commandments. So that's something that's kind of stuck in my mind is that, yeah, we have power. It's not just these commandments given on, on high, but we have something dwelling in us. That's right. And when we don't do that, we, in a sense, insult person, we insult Christ, we insult the Eucharist, uh, in, in the sense that 
if a person has not been baptized, there is no covenant. And if they've broken the covenant through sin, they've stepped out of the covenant. And so what our greatest desire should be is to evangelize, to open others' eyes to what life in Christ means. And, you know, now that, you know, what that really means has been sort of demonized by saying it's, uh, what's the word that is often used? Not evangelization, but proselytizing. Right. That to be explicit and so powerful in one's language to say that what is received in Christ is experienced nowhere else. That this is unique, that this offers us divine life and a share in the life of the Holy Trinity. And you should want and desire this above all things. And it, you know, and when we lose that, it drains all strength out of missionary activity. It makes us passive in the articulation of the gospel, where we cower, you know, in the face of, you know, uh, the secular culture. And whereas we are to be as bold as St. Paul, the apostle, in the proclamation of this truth. But the moment that we lose sight of this and the nature of that relationship, we, we strip ourselves of the capacity of doing so. And the gospel message, in that sense, becomes ever so weak. Why be a Christian? And especially now with the, you know, not only the, the weak example, but the scandalous example that, you know, it's going to take saints, those who are radically given over to what Gordini is talking about here, to enliven the church. Not by what they do, but their radical openness to the grace of God. They, they enter into that covenant fully, and when they receive the Holy Eucharist, they say yes on this profound level, and then God begins to act through them in this extraordinary way. It's not going to be through, again, through talks or another document or through some synod. We could say the same thing about unity among Christians. It's not going to take, take place through all that. It's going to take place in reality through our entering into the Holy Eucharist as fully as we possibly can, whether Orthodox Christians, Catholic Christians, it's by our entering into that mystery in this unrestrained fashion that God will bring it about and restore that unity among his people once again. But there's a kind of hubris, kind of pride that makes us think we're going to, you know, we're going to bring this about by talking about it. We've seen that fail for centuries, and we still, you know, what was it? Einstein says, you know, that's the definition of insanity. Well, we're pretty insane at this point. For centuries, we've been trying to sing things over and over again to restore this broken unity. Okay, but I digress. <laughs> where did I leave off? I can't even remember where I God alone is Lord. Is that where I? Upon the conception. Upon the conception. Pardon me? Upon the conception of streaming blood. Okay. Upon the conception of streaming blood as an expression of ultimate obedience, that God places his covenant. And again, we must be careful to differentiate. The word does not signify here that it does in the various religions, namely the alliance of a divinity with a particular tribe. 
There it constitutes the secret vitality of the tribe, which in turn is the immediate expression of the God's reality. Thus the two are interdependent to the point of being or non-being. The tribe enjoys the power and protection of its God. On the other hand, the God lives from the fertility and strength of the tribe. Their unity is affected in sacrifice. Through his offering, man strengthens the vitality of his God. Then by consuming the offerings, man avails himself of his God's strength. And so it's almost placing them on an equal footing. You know, that through their enacting these sacrifices, they strengthen the God, and then they eat the sacrifices, and they are strengthened themselves. And so that's profoundly different from what we experience, uh, both in the Old Testament, but especially in the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, there is not a trace of any such conception. God is not the divinity of a people or tribe because of any natural circumstance. He's not the mysterious source of its vitality and strength, but one who summons it from the freedom of divine decree. Certainly not because he needs human expression of his existence and a steady stream of earthly vitality in order to exist. He needs neither the Hebrew people nor any other people, for he is the Lord of all that is. He summons this particular race not because it is better or more pious or more loyal than any other. On the contrary, over and over again, it proves itself disobedient, hard-hearted, and inconstant. What God founded with the Hebrew people was neither a powerful theocracy nor a religion expressive of a particular racial existence. He simply entrusted the Hebrews with his word and his law, which they were to bear through history, ultimately to all the peoples of the earth. Why he selected the Hebrews for this task is the impenetrable mystery of his decree. So God is the God of all creation. He's not dependent upon us at all for our identity and meaning. It's out of his love that he creates. He's the God of all creation and of all people. And it's in his freedom that he chooses a particular people. And I'm glad Cordini articulated it in a way that it is an impenetrable mystery for us why he chose the Hebrews, because in reality, they were probably just as unfaithful as everybody else, and they proved it over and over again, you know, in terms of being un unfaithful. Yes? So, you know, it's, it's interesting, because it seems to me that when you study salvation history through the lens of the Jewish people, that it's just one series of you know, screw-ups after another, right? Um, but I love the reaction every time. Mm -hmm. It's never to shake their fists at Christ or God, excuse me, and to, and to say, why, you know, why? Mm -hmm. But it's always to put on sackcloth and ashes and say, I'm sorry. And, and that, like, that's a, a really, I think, powerful lesson for the rest of us tribes, um, because it's a natural rhythm of life. Yeah, and we don't always do that second point. <laughs> very good point. They knew it. Yeah. And they would repent from it. And I think that's why David was so close to the heart of God in that sense. Because he was a troublemaker, and we know he did all kinds of nasty stuff, and yet turned back to God over and over again. And it was that repentant heart that drew God's attention, if you will. And that's still expressed in Christ. You know, it's really the one who knows and acknowledges his sin 
that it's most open then to receive the, the mercy and the love of God. But you're right. You know, I think when we we look through the Old Testament as we follow those stories, it is the failure, but then God embracing and drawing them back again in one way or another, or through a renewal of a particular covenant. Abraham, Noah, Moses, but all pointing to the, the new covenant. Brandon. Um, yeah, my thoughts are just taking me to, you know, I think mostly when we think about the Jews' expectation of a Messiah, we just go all the way up to the Roman occupation and say, like, well, their expectation was that he would be a military leader and he would free his people from their enslavement to Rome. But there were thousands of years before that when that wasn't the expectation. Jews were prosperous, successful, had cities, had cattle, had land. I mean, Abraham's the father of all nations. And yet, all through that history, they were waiting for a Messiah. So they clearly knew there was something they needed. And it wasn't Roman occupation since the beginning. It was they knew that there was sin and that they couldn't be forgiven for it by anything they could do. And all the covenants that come before Noah, he promises, God promises Noah he won't destroy the earth because of its sin. And Abraham, he promises that Israel, like his descendants, will be abundant despite their sin. Moses is a temporary covenant, and he promises, like, I won't abandon you. Um, David, it's, it's simply that the Messiah will come from him. But every actual prophecy of the Messiah is he will save you from your sin. He will save his people from their sin. And however the distortion happened by the time Roman occupation comes around, for many Jews, even then probably, like there was a knowledge that the Messiah to come would save his people from their sins, which is exactly what makes Christ saying your sins are forgiven you such a big deal because they know what the Messiah is going to do. And the Messiah is going to forgive sins. So by saying he has the power to forgive sins, he's clearly identifying himself as the promised Messiah. And it's just such an amazing thing to think that something that was waited for for hundreds of years, that human beings were completely impotent to effect of their own. Like all of these lambs and blood offerings, like, yeah, they had value and meaning. And like the Passover lamb they eat because it's a foretelling of the Eucharist. All the other lambs, they slaughter and burn up. So this is like real property and real valuable stuff that they're, as an acknowledgement of their sin, but not because it's an efficacious way to be absolved of sin. It's more just like God, it's like, it's an apology. It's a way to apologize for sin. But to think that we have immediate access to something that for thousands of years, the people of God had no guarantee of, there isn't any like, your sins are forgiven you. There's just a promise of it, like over and over again. And in the Psalms, it's like, for the sake of your holy name, save me from the consequence of my sin. Or like, I acknowledge my sin before you. And now we can say, for the sake of his sorrowful passion, have mercy on us and forgive our sins. So we have access to this immediate efficacious sacrifice that we hold up. But it's sort of an amazing thing to think of waiting generation upon generation for something 
very, very well point, very well put. And, you know, I think part of it has to do with how we've been created that maintains that sense of, of waiting uh, for what alone can satisfy that deepest longing of the human heart. If we're created for God, and as Augustine says, our hearts are restless till they rest in me, then there is always going to be this sense of the poverty that sin brings to us. And that would shape the human consciousness in such a way, in particular religious consciousness. And those who knew their poverty, when Christ came, when love, when mercy incarnate stood before them, there was almost, there was like this immediate response to it because they had no illusion about their own sinfulness and need for forgiveness. So it was really the grave sinners who seemed to respond most of all to it, to the one alone who could make them what they were meant to be in the mind of God. So the harlots, the tax collectors, you know, the the hoi polloi, people of the land, which the professional religious thought were really you know, pretty low down there, because when you're out working in the fields, you're not going to be keeping all these prescriptions that had sort of built up around the law itself. You know, the fishermen weren't going to keep these elaborate hand-washing codes and things like that. So they were seen as sinners, you know. And, uh, but when Christ came, there was no uh, facade, you know, of in a sense, being able to lift oneself up in the practice of religion to this kind of holiness. Whereas there had built up around the practice of religion, the sense among many, again, the professional religious that, you know, if we carry out these things with exactitude, then we are going to be in this right relationship with God. And so when our Lord comes offering life and mercy, they aren't able to receive it because the pride created such a thick shell around them. So even though it was in the scripture, in the prophets, as you said, you know, this expectation, even of a suffering servant, one who would free his people from their sins, there wasn't, you know, the ability to, to see him when he came. Yes. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Rob had his hand up first. Then we'll, okay. I, I just read a reflection the other day. And then the writer was making a point that, in a sense, God didn't choose the Jewish or the Hebrew people. He chose a man. He chose Abraham because he was righteous and he, you know, passed the tests and were given to him. And so it was because of his his qualities that his descendants were that. Right. There was a radical fidelity there, and upon that fidelity, God would build His people. So I was recently uh, watching a series of the chosen uh, with a friend, of course, it's kind of imaginative mm-hmm. in many of its aspects and kind of there's creative license. But um, I was kind of thinking um, when I was watching about what Ren said, there's this kind of there's this tension between kind of the political aspect and expectations of Messiah, as well as kind of the spiritual expectations of what the Messiah would do and the spiritual knowledge of what the Messiah's mission was. Um, I think the series puts it kind of really well um, because obviously I think perhaps maybe the Roman occupation um, of Israel kind of 
brought with it um, kind of this this expectation um, of a political savior that I think maybe perhaps sometimes overshadowed um, the deep desire for a spiritual messiah. Um, and I think it's beautifully put um, that like Peter in the series and kind of Andrew, kind of their kind of primary concern that sense seems to be kind of this, this political occupation, you know, freedom from the weight of Rome. But then like Jesus comes and he offers them um, kind of this path to the kingdom and they like leave their nets behind and follow them. So I think, yeah, and then I saw this kind of this tension between kind of the spiritual belonging, but then kind of a preoccupation with the day-to-day aspect. That's right. They even struggled with the two of the apostles, you know, make it that one of us sit at your right and your left. So they weren't strangers to that kind of attitude too. Uh, but you're right. You know, I think with this occupation, maybe the focus shifts a little bit and to the sense that, in the sense that it still does today, that we will project onto others, other, you know, countries, you know, other people, that which lies within and needs to be either put down or, or redeemed. And so we will scapegoat other people or other peoples rather than dealing with what's going on within our own hearts you know our focus should, should be you know when we see evil within the world our focus should be to turn back in and look at what's what lies within and the acknowledgement of the need for greater conversion there on our part that we should see this radical solidarity that exists between ourselves and other human beings and we're to avoid that Acknowledgement, we will project an incredible amount of evil out on to others and justify striking them down. And we can do that with the people right in front of us, or we can do that with people, you know, in other countries. But we'll strike them down nonetheless because it's easier than doing that with our own sins, easier than repentance. I want to move on more war, but everybody's still awake. <laughs> Am I at the bottom of the page there? All this? Yes. yes. All this must be clear if the word covenant is to receive its full weight. Above all, it is no question of natural give and take, no alliance between divine essence and the tribal, no blending of divine power with earthly, no beginning of a history of God and the history of a race. Not until all these conceptions have been cleared away does the inconceivable reveal itself. In absolute freedom, the Lord of the universe singles out a people, addresses it, enables it to respond. He gives it his loyalty and demands its loyalty in return. He undertakes a divine task on earth and commands a race to render its services. If that race renounces its natural historical existence in obedience to God's command, it will receive its fulfillment direct from divine sovereignty. But the Hebrew people declined. They clung fast to, to their racial consciousness and will and hardened themselves therein. When God's Son, whose coming had been foretold throughout the centuries, comes to fulfill and end the covenant, his relation to men again assumes the form of a covenant. 
the people of the first covenant crowns its disobedience by turning on the Messiah and killing him. And the second covenant, which should have been sealed in faith and love, once again is sealed in sacrificial blood, now the blood of Jesus Christ. For the Messiah accepts the destiny prepared for him by the disobedient people of the first covenant and turns it into the sacrificial offering of the second, which binds the Father, Lord of the world, to his new people, now no longer a natural ethnic one, but a spiritual people, comprised by all the races of the earth and united by faith. Wherever a man opens his heart to the tidings of Christ and believes in him, he becomes a member of that people, as St. Peter says in his first epistle. You, however, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, purchase a purchased people, that you may proclaim the perfections of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So he lives the covenant in such a perfect way, is so perfectly faithful to the Father that a new covenant between God and us comes into existence through him. He's rejected. He himself becomes the lamb of sacrifice through which redemption in this new covenant is established, but one now that can truly fulfill what it promises and allows us to be ever faithful to it as well, provides us with what is necessary for us to be faithful to that covenant. The new covenant then embraces a divine people which takes nothing from any earthly people and disturbs no national history because it exists on an entirely different plane. So St. Philip Neri said that, you know, we're citizens of no country but that of heaven. And the way that we live our faith should be reflective of that. This is our identity. This is what we are, are united to. It is strange, sorry. It is strange how completely the idea of covenant has vanished from Christian consciousness. We do mention it, but it seems to have lost its meaning for us. Our Christian existence is determined by concepts of the new life, the new world, God's kingdom, all of which tend to attach themselves to corresponding concepts in the natural order and to masquerade as things self-understood. But the moment of demasking always arrives. Then the seeming naturalness of Christian conceptions falls. And we realize with a start that Christian being is no mere continuation of natural being that the Christian order of existence is not simply a higher step in order of, of nature and man, but descends to us from divine freedom and is meant to be caught up and held in human freedom. God summons man before him. On bearing the divine command in question, man is meant to liberate himself from what is purely of this earth and to prove his loyalty to God straight through the ties of the world. What takes place is based not on nature or the processes of history or the unfolding of the mind and spirit, but on grace, summons, freedom, decision, all contained in the idea of the covenant. We are Christians because of a covenant. So we have to understand that this is something that comes to us from the hand of God himself. 
and that are entering into it and being sustained in it. It has nothing to do with our, our natural virtues or nothing to do with uh, any particular ethnic group or, or country, but rather it is all grace and our response to that grace and, and the freedom that God has given us, either to enter into and live in that this covenant that is established in the blood of his son or not. This thought must complement the other, more familiar concept of rebirth and of the new creation, covenant and rebirth, individual dignity and responsibility, and the abundance of the new life. The two great concepts being belong together and they mutually sustain one another. So there's a kind of deep falsehood found in the notion that we are made into a new creation by Christ and by the blood that he sheds upon the cross and the spirit that he breathes upon us without the sense of our having this responsibility in freedom of taking hold of that grace, of loving God in return, of giving ourselves over to this folding. And so, because if we don't have this sense of freedom, a sense of responsibility, then the Christian faith becomes something magical. And when it becomes something magical, then it breaks down altogether. We do not become Christ. We do not become God-bearers. We become Christians in name, but we're living something far different. We're still living on the natural plane, if you will. We have not really fully embraced the divine life that has been given to us. And this is why so often Christianity has no impact upon the world around it. We do not need to be entering into every segment of the world and culture around us. If we are not, it's not going to do anything or have any impact unless we are, are truly living our dignity and identity in Christ. That has to be, everything has to be subordinated to that reality because if it isn't, then our life is going to be a farce. And everything, all the energy that we spend on doing all these things within world, everything that we seek to build outside of that identity is going to go the same path. It's going to become dust and carries no weight in the life of the kingdom or in the eyes of God. So one final paragraph and then I'll open it up for final questions. Holy Mass is the commemoration of God's new covenant with men. Awareness of this gives the celebration an added significance that is most salutary to keep this thought in mind is to remind ourselves that Christ's sacrificial death opened for us the new heaven and the new earth, that there exists between him and us a contract based not on nature or talent or religious capacity, but on grace and freedom that is binding from person to person, loyalty to loyalty. At, at every mass, we should reaffirm that contract and, and consciously take our stand in it. So this is where we are to most, be most firmly rooted. It's in this covenantal relationship that God has established with us in the blood of his only begotten son in order that we might be drawn into the divine life. And if we're not firmly rooted in that reality, then we are not really going to be living as Christians. We're not living in accord with the new covenant. This is what makes Paul so furious because of 
those in his day, the Judaizers, uh, even those who had converted to Christianity, had in mind that those Gentiles first had to convert to become Jews and then become Christians, that they would have to undergo circumcision, that they would have to erase all the Jewish dietary laws. And Paul says, you're going, you're going backwards. You're embracing that which is earthly and lowly and has no power to redeem. You're going back there and pulling people away from embracing the freedom, the life, the redemption that Christ has won for them. You're leading them away from focusing upon this extraordinary grace that is given to them to go back and embrace that which was only pointing to a figure of what finds its fullness in Christ. So in the New Testament, there's nobody that's more honked off than Paul. I mean, he's so infuriated that he says, I wish all of you would circumcise yourself. <laughs> in fact, he goes a step further. I wish you would all, you know, sort of relieve yourself of your manhood if this is what if this is what you're teaching. Because in his mind, it was a kind of demonic theology, because it was leading them away from the fullness of revelation and to put their hope, again, in worldly things, as if somehow that, that held out any life to them. And this he could not stand, stand for. And so, you know, Paul, you know, who preached, you know, this, this self-updating love and who was stoned and whipped with the lash over and over again, shipwrecked, you know, and otherwise, I think seen as a pretty gentle figure. You know, he wasn't seen as like this strong or fiery preacher. Becomes fiery when he sees Christians being led led away from the covenant in which they truly could be redeemed, and to gravitate back to the goal which only prefigured it. Sorry if that was a little too graphic. <laughs> makes an important point though you know that something altogether new and divine a new heaven new earth has been established for us to enter into now and this is what we often fail to see we gravitate back to what is much less we cling to our attachments to the things of this world and don't attach ourselves to the things that give us life prayer and sacramental everything in which we encounter God. Any comments? Randy, you look puzzled. I I don't know. I'm grappling with this thing. So the paragraph that I've been going back and reading a few times is the one on the third page that's about blood. Mm -hmm. And and like I can see really clearly the temptation to believe that communion is just a symbol. Like, it really is just wine in a house. Like, it's nothing crazy. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's important. It's really significant symbol. But, like, we're not voodoo. We're not, like, practicing some kind of witch religion. Like, it, it's, just, it's just wine and bread. Like, in reality, we just call it the body and blood of Christ. Because there is something visceral about that. Like, 
And I find, and I guess the reason I look puzzled is, is I'm trying to grapple with the fact that I see that feeling in myself too. Like there's something a little like, uh, about like it's real blood. Like you, you feel like you're, you know, a member, like, you know, of some, because, because of all the connotations he addresses in that paragraph of this like weird, and as he says, like, um, uh, if anything, if ever anything, that's quite a statement, really. Um, the primitive significance of blood cannot simply be applied to it, applied as it stands to revelation, for if ever anything needed redemption, it is the dark primeval powers of blood, which sounds exactly like, and I, I guess I'm just, um, yeah, I guess I'm just kind of grappling with that in my own mind. And then it also took my thoughts to, what is it about civilization as we think of it or like the first world sort of being built that that makes us so uneasy with that like because in a way we know it and now this weird thing is happening where we're kind of obsessed with seeking out like we love going to the untouched tribes of the world or seeking out primitive peoples and we we hold up as, as like really good, you know, um, their connection to the earth, um, you know, the ways that they would con- like seek to connect to the spirit of animals that they're about to slaughter, um, the way they hold things so significant. And we like kind of elevate that, but maybe in kind of a weird way. And then, but somehow, even though that's great, it's very difficult to accept that we're being told to drink real blood and eat real flesh, and yet that's in the gospel like a million times over, that it is that. I don't know. So I guess I just, yeah, crap, like, because he's right. The idea of like being... We are talking about the Eucharist, and we're also talking about, you know, uh, know, the the risen, (laughs) you know, that there's a transformation that takes place there. And I think when people think about it, they think about, you know, are we cannibals? Right. You know, and in saying that we consume the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And I think we shrink back from that. But I, I think, you know, in some sense, we're past that. You know, with Christian, I mean, I think most people have a sense of Catholic theology and even on a basic level to understand that that's not what we're saying. I think more fundamentally at the root of that is our fear of death. And the more that we move away from he who is the source of life, who's given us his life, that we, uh, you know, we grab, you know, we gravitate towards sanitizing everything, making it, we even hide the experience of death now. You know, people die in hospitals, sort of in, you know, these enclosed rooms in a very sanitized kind of existence. We don't see it, you know, we try to keep it from our eyes as much as possible, even though there's so much death within the world, and even though much of the world suffers in this extraordinary way, we, you know, in the more civilized, you know, first world, you know, we, we move away from it and sanitize it, but we understand it less than the reality of, of, of sin, but also its consequence, its main consequence. 
which is death. Whereas the fathers of the church, as you know, we talk all the time, memento mori, remember death, because it becomes the lens that clarifies things for us. The need for he who is life in order to restore us. And when we do not acknowledge the truth of that, and when we sanitize it, push it out of mind and existence, and we can go about our merry way and live as though we're never going to die and pursue all these things within the world that again come to nothing and we do not attend to our eternal life. Yes. I wonder if uh, a part of kind of going a bit off of Ren's question, part of the difficulty of the doctrine of the Eucharist and presenting it to non-Catholics, I think, to well, Protestants and you know, much less non non-Christians, is that there, yeah, there's a lot of difficult aspects to Eucharist. There's a lot that requires kind of such a radical re- reorientation of our view of God, like thinking about like, the blood um, and life thing. Like in the Eucharist, in a sense, like God puts Himself in our control, but that that at the priest beck and call, Christ becomes present in the Eucharist if the priest has a proper intention and has the proper matter of bread and wine, regardless of how irreverent the liturgy is, regardless of the state of that priest's fault. Like Jesus becomes present, he allows himself to be mishandled, um, mistreated, and I think maybe there's kind of a reorientation and a conversion of our minds that needs to happen in the same way that you know, for the Jews, it was so incomprehensible that God would become man. And you know, for the Muslims, it's absolutely objectionable that God would become man. Um, yeah, this is not a new problem, but God has revealed himself uh, as never before in this definitive way. And it is the understanding of the incarnation that is our starting point, that God has revealed himself, but in this particular way, that he's taken our flesh upon himself. And this is what reshapes our view of reality as a whole, and what it is to be in a relationship with God, but also what it is to be a human being. And it's always been something that's difficult to, to wrap the mind around, and we are simply trying to do so via intellect and reason. You know, when Jesus begins to teach about the Eucharist, if you remember, you know, half of his disciples leave. And then he turns to Peter and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter doesn't say, oh, I get it. I know what you're saying. I've sort of figured it out here. You know, he says, where are we going to go? You have the words of everlasting life. He had faith in the person and the word that he was speaking to him. And so allowed himself to be drawn along into the mystery. And, you know, even Paul had to understand this, too, because in his first preaching, he tries to be rather philosophical, you know, in preaching to the Greeks. And he makes no converts. He's an utter failure. It's only when he begins to preach Christ crucified that there's something there about that mystery that penetrates the human heart. And so, you know, our response, again, it's it's not to have one lecture after another, it's to be living it, that we embody it, 
we embody Christ and that there's an encounter with him, the person of Christ. This is, this is what enlivens faith in the others and then through this faith then allows people to comprehend the deeper realities that God has revealed to us. And our struggle in the West is that we often more overly intellectualize things. And the problem with that is not that intellect and reason are a bad thing, it's that they ultimately stall in the face of divine mystery. That this is only comprehended in and through the gift of faith. And this is what we are to seek to awaken in, in our evangelization. This is what we are to seek to awaken in others. And it's awakened, or a person becomes open to receive that gift of faith when they encounter the divine in us. And what we say and what we do, how we live our lives. Yes, Father, I, I, I was reflecting on exactly the same thing that, you know, we cannot explain the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. People, you know, it's a mystery. We won't be able to have the words to express it, but we can express Christ through ourselves. This week, actually, I had a pretty humbling experience that showed me that, you know, I have a long, long way to go in this path. I was having dinner with an agnostic friend, and I'm griping about my worries and insecurities and so forth. And my agnostic friend says to me, well, you believe in all this stuff about God. If you believe in God, then you should have no worry. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just keep on, you know, keep on with my heart. So, and I really believe this stuff. He's right. I should be acting different. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's ultimately, you know, what people, again, what people see within us that. You're right, we can't explain the Holy Eucharist or the Incarnation, but we can bear witness to it. And that's why I often said that, you know, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of faith. When they see, when people see this kind of self-emptying love of the cross, you know, you hear all these stories like a martyr's, like a splash of the blood of a martyr hits somebody in the hand and they convert upon witnessing that, or the 40 martyrs of Sebastian, they were put in icy water and, uh, you know, and then to freeze. And if there were all these hot, like sort of tubs that they could get out if they renounced their faith and, you know, immerse themselves in. And they all refused to do so except one. And then like one of the soldiers though, witnessing the profound faith of these martyrs converts and undergo experiences their same faith. The worst part is the one who didn't stay out on the ice with all the others was so frozen by the time he chose to bail that he ran across the ice, got into one of the tubs, and the shot killed him instantly. So it's pretty rough story. So never jump into a hot tub. <laughs> never bail on your margin of folks. <laughs> Just it's only gonna last a little longer. <laughs> Just hold on. <laughs> so we've gone long. So why don't we stop there for tonight? We'll close with the prayer here to St. Philip. And uh, and then we have coffee and snacks for the yes. name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley. 
to this calamity, and now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine from looking clearly into all things, look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid, to thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender. Undertake the cause of our salvation. Protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader. Rule thine army fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine and place as thou art on high. Keep us off all the rocks of evil desires. That with thee for our pilot and God, we may safely come to the Lord of eternal bliss. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. St. Philip, pray for us. St. John Henry Newman, pray for us.